family. Reading of God's word. I feel like I'm back in the 90s with all these chords. All right. Matthew 8, 28 through 34. It's our text this morning, but here's what the Holy Scriptures read. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdmen's fled, and going into the city... They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me and for me as we go to it this morning? Father, we ask again that you would, through the power of your spirit, that you would be our teacher. We ask that we would drop any of our notions entirely if we find that in your word. And so, Father, I ask that that I would make your word clear for us today, that you would remove distractions, and that we would see the authority and the power of Jesus as shown in this text, and we'll give you all the praise for it. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to the spookiest night of the year, what comes to your mind? Halloween. Without a doubt, it is October 31st. And though for many, this annual holiday is simply nothing more than a time for some light fun to get some free candy and maybe dress up as your favorite superhero or maybe a sports player or my favorite, maybe just literally the best dinosaur ever, the modern day holiday of Halloween for many actually is much more than that. And we look at the history to see where this comes from. So for instance... For many, Halloween is a time when they attempt to connect with spirits beyond the material world. And we see that in its origins, actually. The modern-day holiday of Halloween actually dates back about 2,000 years to the ancient Celtic festival, see if I can say this right, Sowen, and was a day that marked the end of summer and the beginning of harvest, cold winter, in a time of the year that many associated with human death. See, the Celts believed that on this night, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead blurred, so much so that they believed that they could actually better commune with these spirits in order to learn about the future. And it's divination is what it was, to try to figure out what kind of winter was coming so that they would be better prepared for it. Now, when it comes to communing with dead spirits, I don't think anyone here thinks of Halloween that way, and that's not the point at all. The point simply is this, that many out there do believe in communing with dead spirits and actually try to and do. From mediums to psychics 
to fortune tellers, to tarot readings. There is no shortage of interest out there from those who would wish to communicate with spirits that are beyond the natural realm. In fact, you can find a whole lot of these services online, most of which I'm sure are totally jokes. But speaking of online, and I wouldn't advise you to go looking for these sorts of things, but there's numerous websites that go well beyond this into dark, terrifying territories. For example, many of them will boldly state that they are not simply trying to commune with spirits. They're trying to commune with demonic spirits. Did you know that? There's a whole group of people out there that are into this freaky kind of stuff. And if you're like me, when I read this, I was like, what is wrong with these people? Why would you want to commune with demonic spirits? Why would anyone want to do that? Well, for many, it's because they believe that these demonic spirits have something to offer them. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's great wealth, favor, or even fame. For example, and you all probably know who this musician is, but he was, he's considered by many to be the greatest songwriter of all time. There was an interview, and I watched this just this week, where he talked of a bargain he made with one of these demonic spirits long, long ago, at the beginning of his stellar career. And I want to read you a little bit what the interview, how the interview went. The interview responded. He said, well, what was your bargain? He said, to get where I am now. Should I ask who you made the bargain with, the interviewer said. Laughing, Dylan responded with a nervous stutter, saying, with, uh, with you know, the chief commander on this earth and in the world that we can't see. That's what he said, verbatim. <laughs> like, I watched the video. I watched the words come out of his mouth. Now, whether or not he was being honest or even serious, I can't know. But we do know that throughout human history, there are many who have claimed similar experiences. And one of the primary tools for this experience, for succeeding in having it, uh, I was reading about these studies done showing that hallucinetic drugs are used often to facilitate these otherworldly experiences with these beings from beyond the natural realm. I know what you're likely thinking. Well, yeah, duh, you start taking shrooms, you're going to see all sorts of trippy stuff. It's no wonder. Yeah, they're, they're just tripping on acid or whatever they're on, right? However, what I found most disturbing about this is researchers have studied this, okay? And they've seen that people from different times, different places, who didn't even know each other, didn't watch the same stupid movies that Hollywood throws out about the demonic realm. This goes way back even before movies. Their experiences they describe of the demonic realm same message, same type of beings that they see. And it's like, did these guys get together and describe this, like come up with this stuff? It's, it's freaky stuff. Now, for whatever experience is worth, which outside of scripture is, as we all know, not much, the truth is there are people out there who have strikingly similar experiences of communicating with those from the demonic realm manifestations of beings from the demonic realm that share a same message. And while foolishly, these people believe that these spirits from this realm have something to offer them, right? As a church, we know better, don't we? We know they have absolutely nothing of value to offer us. And so for us, 
we neither approach spiritual realms, other beings, right, you know, like our world does with this kind of lighthearted manner, but nor do we approach it foolishly thinking it is anything other than a kingdom that is hell-bent on our eternal destruction. That's what it is. It's a kingdom that's hell-bent on our eternal destruction. And how do I know that? Because of people's experiences that I know, because of God's word. See, we build our doctrine not on experience, but upon God's word. And then, ironically enough, experience often matches what we find in God's word, right? It's almost like it's true, because it is true. We build doctrine upon the word of God, not experience. And when we do so, we see what God's word tells us about this demonic realm. And here's what the apostle Peter warns. He says this in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Similar, the apostle Paul warns this in Ephesians 6 verse 12. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, when it comes to wrestling against these powerful principalities, against powerful evil spiritual powers, against the powerful rulers of darkness, church, we must understand that there is only one who has power and authority over them. And guess what? It's not you. It's not me. Right? For the only one with that kind of power and authority is the sovereign king of the universe. And as Matthew has been telling us, he's been telling us over and over who that is, and that is King Jesus. It's not me. It's not you. Jesus is the king. He is the sole one with the authority and the power over these spirits. And so far in our study of the book of Matthew... We've seen this authority on full display. Matthew is like shouting it over and over and over with just example after example. At the end of the Sermon of the Mount, what did the people marvel at? Jesus spoke with what? Authority, right? They weren't used to that. Like, why is he speaking with authority? He's not referencing scribes. He's not referencing all the rabbis of the past. He's just like truth and then more truth, just truth bomb after truth bomb. And they marveled at this. And then that question, who is this man who speaks with such authority? Matthew's like, good question. I'm going to answer that. Chapters 8 and 9, he goes there. And we see Jesus' authority on full display. And you remember this. First, we saw how Jesus' authority over disease as he heals them. He healed the leper. He healed the centurion's servant. And then he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Then we see Jesus' authority as he says, you know what, you want to be my disciple? Here's what this is going to cost you. It's going to cost you potentially, well, at least to some level, your comfort. It may cost you your relationships. And it may even cost you your very life. You sure you want to be my disciple? Because if so, I am the authority. And you must be willing to give these things up. Then last week we saw, I'm sure you remember this as well, we saw the authority and the incredible, magnificent power of Jesus as he calmed the storm, which as you remember, this made the disciples go from being fearful of the storm to being terrified of the one who calmed the storm, who was standing there in the boat with them. 
They were terrified because this one, Jesus, what he did was he stopped basically a hurricane-like storm with a hush. That's power. That's power beyond our wildest imagination. That's a power with impressive authority. Here's the thing, church. As we said before, beginning of this worship service, to understand Jesus' authority requires understanding his power. We have to understand his power if we are going to recognize his absolute authority. Because if you don't understand his incredible power, the verse of that is true, you don't understand his authority. And so to understand Jesus' authority is to understand, as we'll see this morning, four things about his power. First, the power over us. Secondly, the power greater than us. Third, the power against us. And fourth, the power for us. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Verse 28 reads, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, to set the stage here, as we just said a second ago, Jesus just calmed the storm. They were cro- he was teaching. They crossed in a boat across the other side, the disciples were with him. The big storm comes up. He calms it with his voice, with a little hush, very powerful. But then beginning in verse 28, we see that they cross to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, and what immediately happens? These two demon-possessed men come running down out of the tombs right at them. But already we have two problems here in this text that our atheist friends, our unbelieving friends will point out to us, and what are they? Well, Matthew tells us that this takes place in the country of the Gadarenes, but interestingly enough, we have this account in Mark and Luke. It's not a different demonic healing, right? This is, it's the same account, right? And in Mark and Luke, they tell us that it takes place in the country of the Gerasenes. So Gadarenes, Matthew says, Gerasenes, Mark and Luke say. Well, is that it? Is this Bible not... God's perfect word after all? Well, no, I don't think so. Okay? However, there's another problem. Matthew tells us there's two demon-possessed men, while Mark and Luke tell us there's one. Maybe there's just a smudge on these things, and then, you know, it was that. No, I don't think so. Here's why. First, as far as the names being different, the right way to understand this difference, I think, is kind of like saying, you know, if you say, oh, yeah, John over here, he's, he, he's from Brainerd. And then maybe somebody else says, oh, John here is from the Brainerd Lakes, right? Brainerd's the city. The Brainerd Lakes is the larger geographical area. One's a city, right? The other's an area that includes several towns and cities. See, here's how this worked. There there certainly was, as our unbelieving friends will point out to us, there was a town named Gadara, but that town's district was also called Gadara. It's kind kind of confusing if you don't know that. And this district of Gadara extended to this lakeside where Jesus landed with his disciples, all right? So basically, think the town of Gadara versus the village of Geressa, all right? Both of those, you have town of Gadara, track with me, I think I'm making sense. You have the village of Geressa, both under the providence of Gadara. So it's not a contradiction, not at all, all right? 
I'm sure that got confusing if you're like, hey, Siri, navigate to Gadara. It's like, well, which one, Providence or town, right? But the point is, back then, they knew the difference. And we look at this today, and we're like, wait a minute. This seems like a contradiction. Like, did you guys not talk ahead of time? Are you making this up? But it's not, actually. All right, so that one is a swing and a miss from our unbelieving friends. But what about the other one? Is that a contradiction? You know, Mark and Luke say two demons. Matthew says one. I mean, this is... They got the numbers wrong, right? No, I don't think so. How many demon-possessed men were there? One, like Mark and Luke say, or two, like Matthew says? Two. That's the only way it's not a contradiction. All right, here's how this works. Let's say later today, uh, you know, during the bike ride, you know, let's say there's 20 of us who meet. We go, we bike to Nisswa, we get dinner, we come back. And let's say later, I call my sister, and she's like, hey, what did you do this afternoon? I'm like, oh, I went for a bike ride. She's like, oh, who'd you bike with? I'm like, oh, Randy. Yeah, we were chatting the whole way there and had a good time. And then, you know, rode bike there. And actually, you know, I almost turned the wrong way. And he told me, hey, that's the wrong way. Is that come back this way? You know, and I'm focused on Randy in the story, right? Because there's something I want her to know about that story. But then let's say later she talks to Becky. And Becky's like, oh, yeah, we went biking today. Oh, yeah, who'd you go with? Well, Zach, Randy, Steph. Look around the room, named 15 other people. Is that a contradiction? No. For my purpose in the story, I'm focused on Randy because I got something I want to tell you about the bike ride I had with Randy. Everybody else, sorry, you don't matter for the sake of my story right here, but for Becky's, it does. That's what Matthew's doing. That's what Mark and Luke are doing. And in fact, it's interesting enough because Mark and Luke, they point out the one demon's name even, which was what? Legion, for we are many. Okay, so it makes sense why they're focusing in on just the one demon well, Matthew's not. And, and really, like, we're speculating here. We don't know fully why Matthew and Mark focus on the one, or sorry, Mark and Luke focus on the one, and Matthew focuses on the other one. Maybe it's because just one of the two men became a follower of Jesus. I don't know, but it's not a contradiction. So that too is a swing and a miss, right? So any of you younger kids, you go off to college, if you come back and you're like, let me show you a contradiction, I'm gonna be like, I preached on that, you weren't listening, <laughs> okay? It's not a contradiction. And this is the interesting thing about God's word. You will find over and over again that these little contradictions, okay, it's like, oh, wait, you're forgetting this one piece of information you didn't know about. Boom. Oh, it's not a contradiction. Oops. Well, there's another one over here. That's how, typically how this game works. But it's not the case. As we know, church, God's word is perfect. God's word does not lie. It does not contradict itself. All right. Let's get into this. Now, what do we know about these demons? Well, they have power, right? That's our first point. They were clearly very powerful. Verse 28 says, they made these two men so fierce that no one could pass that way without what? Getting a beat down, basically, right? They were super strong. Another thing, and Matthew doesn't mention it in his account, as we just said, but Mark and Luke tell us the demon's name is legion, for we are many. What does that word legion mean? Well, it has to do with the Roman army. And throughout history, the numbers that, you know, the total amount of soldiers that were in a legion, it varied. But during Jesus' time, most historians believe that the number was roughly around 6,000 men that made up a legion. Other times it was 3,000, other times it went up to 7,000. But at this time, it was about 6,000 men that made up a Roman legion, which meant this dude had a whole lot of demons in him. 
No wonder he was all that strong. Like Mark and Luke talk about how they were like breaking the chains and stuff. Like they couldn't subdue these guys. Mark tells us that these demons caused the men not to have good fortune and fame, but misery when they eventually had full control over them. They caused them to torture themselves, to cut themselves with rocks, to run around naked like wild beasts. In Matthew 17, we see how demons treat their hosts. There's one boy who goes to Je- or one father who goes to Jesus, and he's like, would you heal my son? There's you know, a demon, he keeps coming on him, he throws him into these fits and throws himself into the fire. Not very nice to their hosts, are they? And if that's not bad enough, I would encourage you to write down and go read Revelation chapter 9, where you read of the torture and death and misery that the demons of hell will bring upon this earth during the great tribulation. It's not pretty stuff. Now, aren't you glad that as a Christian that you have the Spirit of God in you and you are completely immune to all demonic effects whatsoever? Not hardly. (laughs) Yeah, from possession, for sure, no questions, but not oppression. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. In 1 Timothy, here's what Paul says. He says, if you are proud you'll fall into the trap of the devil. Sounds bad. In Ephesians, Paul says this, if you're bitter or if you hold a grudge against someone else, what's the result? Read the text. He basically is like, Satan's going to get you. It's going to be bad for you. You're opening a foothold into demonic oppression into your life. See, church, what the Bible tells us is that even as Christians, if we do not follow what Paul says to do in Ephesians 4, to walk in the Spirit, or in Ephesians 6, to put on the full armor of God, we expose ourselves to spiritual attack. We absolutely do. Which means that if we do expose ourselves, we are asking for big-time trouble when it comes to the kingdom of darkness. Yes, they cannot literally possess us. However, Through our sin, they can infest us by making our thoughts, tempting us to leading us to our thoughts, our desires to become wicked, evil, and unholy. Now, I need to give this little disclaimer here. I don't pretend to know for a second how demons fully operate. I know they don't have all of God's attributes. I know they're not omniscient. Like, they're not all-knowing. They're not all-powerful. They're not all-present at all places. They don't have that. There's something going on here with their abilities that is way beyond the realm of human abilities. And so when it comes to understanding how demons operate, one, I have to recognize, we have to recognize, we don't fully get this stuff. However, at the same time, the Bible does tell us a bit of how they operate, and that's what we need to go off of. And what the Bible tells us is that my flesh makes me incredibly vulnerable to their attacks, even as a spirit-indwelled Christian. Do you believe that? You should. Don't just give a quick yes answer to that question either. I want to encourage you to think about that question. Do you believe that because of our sinful flesh, we are incredibly vulnerable to their attack? If so, what in your life shows that you actually believe this? Think about that for a minute. What about your life demonstrates wartime living? Or if we looked at your life, would it look like pretty cushy, pretty cozy, 
pretty comfy, like it's peacetime living. Because if you think about it, if you actually believe you are up against a spiritual army that is out to undo you and those believers and people around you, you're not going to live like it's peacetime, are you? Do you approach your marriage as if there's a very real powerful enemy who wants to see it ripped in two? Do you approach your relationship with your children that way? Recognizing that there is a spiritual darkness out there that would love nothing more than to twist their souls into rejecting Christ forever and spending eternity in hell. Do you approach your church as if there is a real, active, and evil force that wants to see you and it fall and use you to make it fall? A force that wants to see a spirit of divisiveness creep in. I mean, name the sin. To see people who care more about fellowship than preserving the faith. To see a church that cares more about nice things, which we certainly love, like decorations, potlucks, and church parties, than seeing the salvation of souls and the growth of God's people in their discipleship. To see a bunch of people who are more concerned about what the church can offer them than what they can offer the church. That's their goal, without a doubt. And why? Because Scripture tells us that's their goal. See, if you say you believe we are truly at war right now, if we're in wartime living, then let me also ask you an important question. If you suddenly moved away from this area, or passed away, you know, uh, would your church give any thought at all to how they would fill your shoes? Would the pastor sit down with the leadership in the church and say, man, it is really a bummer. You know, God is sovereign. Praise God. He moved him where he wanted to move to. It's, I don't know. We're going to have to figure something out around here. Better start praying, gentlemen, because we've got big shoes to fill. Would your church even recognize your absence? Or would the only thing that was noticed was the ever so slight dip in the overall Sunday morning attendance? Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Does your life show that that's what you believe you are up against? If that's the power we are up against, well... How do we wrestle it? Paul says we wrestle. So how do we wrestle? How do we fight against it? Well, when it comes to that question, let's look at some of the bad answers out there because there's a lot of them. A lot of really, really bad answers when it comes to answering how we wrestle these powers. For instance, when it comes to wrestling, many will tell you silly things like this. They'll tell you, you know what? Demons, they hold specific territory and we can take that territory back. How? By doing prayer walks. We walk around, we find where they're at, we identify it by sensing the spiritual darkness. And we walk around kind of like the Israelites did around Jericho and just, you know, eventually those, that kingdom comes crumbling down and they lose their territory. 
Basically, you just keep nuking it with prayer bombs and make sure you say in the name of, the Jesus, in the name of Jesus because the more times you say that, the bigger the bomb gets. How about hedges of, of protection? I don't know why you want a hedge. How about a steel wall, right? Like, I don't know where it came from. There's this terms and stuff that we have where I'm like, what? What is this? It's like, he doesn't have, Satan doesn't, I mean, there's tons of comedians who make jokes about this, so I'm not going to steal their stuff, but you get the idea, right? Like, it's not going to stop him. A hedge of protection. How about the whole armor of God? How about you pray for me that I would put on and keep on the whole armor of God, which is all about truth and resting in the power of God, right? That's what it's about. How about you pray for me and I will pray for you in that way? The stuff people come up with gets even weirder and really unbiblical really fast. And it actually has more connected to paganism than it does to Christianity, sadly. Many professing Christians believe this. This is really, this is wild stuff. They believe that in order to get power over a demon, you know what you have to do? This goes back to paganism. You have to know the demon's name. Because to know a, de- to know a name, there's power in the name, right? Like we sing today, all hail the power of demon. Or, uh, no, we did not sing that. We sang all hail the power of Jesus' name. Heresy alert. We sang all hail the power of Jesus' name. And they believe, oh, well, if we get the name of these demons, we will have power over them. And so how do you get the power over them? Well, of course, it's not written in the Bible. You've you got to talk to them. I'm not making this stuff up. This is, this is like mainstream stuff for a lot of people. You've got to talk to the demons and kind of, you know, find a way to get their name. And then when you do, then you can take that territory back. We gotcha, I got your name, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know if, the only thing I can think of, maybe this is like when your mom is like really mad at you and she uses your middle name and there's like power in that and you're like, oh, I better run, you know? I don't know if that's what they're thinking, but it doesn't make any sense biblically. I mean, you're going to be like, oh, I got your name. Larry the demon, you know, I command you to come out. And you have to because I said your name. It doesn't make any sense. It's basically viewing this kind of like an incantation or a spell that we cast. Isn't that what it is? And yeah, we use in Jesus' name, but the power for us when we approach it this way isn't so much in Jesus as it's in the power I hold and knowing the right magical words. The sad reality is when it comes to spiritual warfare, there's all sorts of bizarre stuff out there that claims to be Christian when the reality is it's a cult, right? It's been synchronized. It's been trying to blend it with Christianity. You can't do that. It doesn't work. So here's the thing. When it comes to wrestling against these powerful principalities, against these powerful, evil, spiritual powers, against the powerful rulers of darkness, we have to understand there is only one who has power and authority over them. And guess what? It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. And this leads us to our second point. To understand Jesus' authority is to understand, first, the power over us, and that's the demonic power that we are not stronger than. And second off, it's to understand the power that is greater than us. Look at verse 30. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged Jesus, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, one word, go. So out they came and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. After the demons confront Jesus, 
and they realize who he is, do you see what Jesus does? Look at verse 32. Does he say, all right, we're going to get these demons out. Let's light some candles, put them in a circle. Maybe we'll get some fragrance going, you know, some smoke, and we need all you disciples to chant. We do this for a couple hours, we'll get them out. No, he doesn't do that. And why not? Because Jesus doesn't cast out demons like the way you find everybody else throughout history, especially in other religions who try to do so. Because this isn't just like a Christian or Jew, like a Jewish thing. Other religions, the Egyptians, they tried to cast out demons, right? And whenever people throughout history who's not Jesus, who tries to cast out a demon, they invoke the name of a higher power in order to try to get that demon out. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Why? Because he is the higher power. He just has to say, go, and they go. Similar to how he told the hurricane-like storm to hush, and it hushed. Like that. And why? Because as verse 29 rightly points out, because he is the Son of God. And only the Son of God wields that kind of authority and power. Not you, not me, only God. Not even mighty angels. That's what Jude is telling us. You remember probably, I don't know if you were here, like two years ago when we went through the book of Jude. Anybody remember that? But we remember in Jude what happened, right? Jude's telling us about people who stepped out of their realms of authority, who took on things that they had no business doing. Okay, And he tells us how even Michael the archangel, when he was in a dispute with Satan, he wouldn't dare pronounce a blasphemous judgment upon him. He just said, I leave it to the Lord to rebuke you. And yet, what do we see when we flick on the TV? We see these preachers rebuking Satan, rebuking COVID or whatever, you know, their silly things that they're trying to do, the spirit of disease. They have no authority to do so. None whatsoever. And to do so, as Jude points out, is to actually assume God's authority upon yourself. Serious stuff. It's to sit upon his throne. And Michael's like, "Mm mm-mm. As the archangel, he wouldn't dare do that. People who presume that it's okay to take God's authority presume wrongly, especially when they fail to recognize that the power that they are trying to control is greater than them, and stepping on God's power and overstepping his authority, what does that do? That brings an even greater power against us, which leads us to our third point. To understand Jesus' authority is to understand the power over us, which is the demonic, to understand the power greater than us, which is Jesus' authority, but also to understand the power against us. What is that? Look at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? There's just, there's like a ton going on in this verse, so we're only going to touch on a, a few things of this. But when the demons come rushing down this hill, they see it's the Son of God, and this is like the ultimate back the truck up moment in all of human history. Because why are they coming? They're like, let's get them, right? Because remember, nobody could pass, and they come rushing down to get them, and all of a sudden they're like, we don't want this fight. Why are you here? What are you doing, Jesus? And what's interesting enough about that question, you see in the text, it says, why are you here? Well, what do they mean by here? I don't think that has to do with Gadara. I think that has to do with earth itself. Okay, why? Because what's their question then right after that? 
have you come to torment us before the time? What are you doing? <laughs> right? Because these guys understood what the time was, right? The demons understood that the time is the day of the Lord, which is a time of judgment upon the entire earth where Christ will return, hopefully very, very soon, and destroy all who oppress, oppose his rule and reign. And how with his voice? I don't have time to read it, but I encourage you also to write down Revelation 19 if you want to read what this looks like. And evidently, the demons had a right understanding of eschatology, which is end times. Okay, Because remember, what were demons before their fall? They were angels. They went to the best seminary to ever exist. They went to heaven seminary. They knew some things about God's plan. And so when Jesus shows up, they're like, what are you doing? Not time for this yet. We still got time. And that's why they ask what they ask. Now, for this morning, we can't go any further into this than that, but the takeaway here is this, I think. The demons were terrified. And why? Because that's the right response when you recognize the Son of God stands before you, the Holy Son of God is before you, and you're not so holy. In fact, you're unholy. And even though these demons were beings of immense power, they recognized a being of even greater power before them, a being who makes all other powers pale in comparison, a being whom is none other than the Holy Son of God. In the boat, what did the disciples do when they realized who calmed the storm? That he, they, they, they got afraid. They were more scared. They were scared because they thought they were going to die, and then they were scared because they're like, this is bad. There's a holy God before us. Who is this? They were terrified. And then in verse 34, how do the people of the city respond after Jesus casts out the demons and they go into the herd of pigs who then run into the sea and drown? How do the people of the town respond? Well, Luke tells us, he says, they were seized with great fear. And they asked Jesus to leave. Now, why is that? Because of this. To even glimpse the almighty power of a holy God is an absolutely terrifying encounter. Because as sinners, we stand before that all-powerful, all-holy God, completely condemned in our sin. Unless, then, his power simply moves from being greater than all other powers, but moves to become a power that's for us, we too, like the demons, will forever stand in fear and dread of him. This leads us to our final point. To understand Jesus' authority is to understand the power over us, the power greater than us, the power against us, and finally, the power that is for us. And he said to them in verse 32, go. And so they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, last week when I was studying this passage, I noticed that a lot of the commentators jumped into like, like commentators are usually really solid and they don't do this, but they jumped into like full-blown speculation mode when it came to this whole thing about the pigs, because like nobody really has a clue kind of exactly why you know, the pigs are even mentioned. Um, nobody knows why the demons really wanted to go into the pigs, though some speculate. The text doesn't tell us. Or do we know why they immediately drowned the pigs in the lake? We don't know that because Matthew doesn't tell us that. Mark doesn't tell us that. Luke doesn't tell us that. And after reading all the different ideas out there, and there's a whole wide host of them, 
I concluded something profound about those questions of why the pigs, why the drown, all that, and it's this. I don't know. But there is something I do know, and I know this isn't very profound, but I think we can conclude from this text something that is very important, which is God loves us more than pigs. Sorry, Peter, but he does, right? Like, that's, that's a no-brainer from this. He, he saves the demoniacs by taking the demons out and allowing them to go into the pigs. And it's, he doesn't start shedding tears over the pigs, no. And so these demon-possessed men are cast out. These men who started in a really bad way, didn't they? Why? They were living naked in the tomb, day and night. They roamed around the mountains, crying out in pain, cutting themselves, controlled and oppressed by these demons. But then along comes Jesus, who through his authority, who through his power, he removes their oppression. How? By going through the lengths necessary to remove the ultimate oppression, which was so much greater than mere demonic possession. In Mark and Luke's gospel, after Jesus casts out the demons, we find one of these demons. He's healed, and he's clothed in his right mind, sitting with Jesus. It's remarkable. But at the end of every gospel of account, you know what we find? We find the great cost that was necessary for our ultimate healing that Christ brings. And it was the cost of the cross. That's what it took. See, on the cross... Jesus' robes were stripped from him as he went naked to it. On the cross, Jesus was cut, whipped, beaten, and maimed as he too cried out upon a mountain. On the cross, Jesus bled and died as his body then was placed into a tomb. And why? It's the great reversal. His robes for mine. That's why. That's what it took. And it is only the power of the cross that could ever save us from the ultimate threat to us, which is the power of God's judgment and wrath that stands before all unholy creatures. And that includes you. That includes me. But praise God for the gospel. As Paul writes in Romans 1.16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Do you know what he's saying? The Jew first and the Greek. That's everybody. Those are the only two categories. There's not a third option. It's not like it's for the Jew and the Greek, but not the demoniacs. They're in a whole different camp. The gospel is not powerful enough for them. No, it is powerful enough for all, the Jew first and to the Greek. And so church, when it comes to facing our spiritual enemies, as as C.S. Lewis pointed out, there's two equal and opposite errors when it comes to this. One, an unhealthy preoccupation with the demonic realms, and two, a complete ignoring of their existence. We don't want to do either one of those two things. What we want to do is recognize the threat they pose to us, but then totally rely upon the gospel and the power of God as our defense. Not by commanding demons by name, not by capturing demonic territory or any of that other unbiblical silliness. No, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it's a power that brings salvation to all who believe, which then enables us to properly wrestle against these principalities and powers and to succeed in that wrestling. How? Not by my power, 
but by the power of Christ as we cling to him and trust in him for our victories. Are you doing that? Are you living like it's a wartime or like it's peacetime? What in your life can you point me to that shows me otherwise? In Mark's gospel, we see how this man was forever changed. We see how it affected the way he lived. For Mark tells us that this Gentile man, because remember, this was a Gentile area that Jesus was in, he went out and became one of the first missionaries to the Gentiles. He went out to bring that gospel light to those who were in darkness. And so may we, as a church, stand strong upon this gospel, upon this truth, trusting in its power, which comes from the shed blood of Jesus upon the cross. Father, we thank you for this text. And Lord, we thank you that you give us in your word narratives like this, recountings like this, so that we might not venture into error. Error is dangerous. Bad doctrine hurts people and does not please you. So may we never forget that. But may we also as a church never be ashamed of the gospel and always remember that it is the power of God into salvation, not just for our justification, but it's the power for our sanctification. It's the power that makes us continue to become more like Christ and the power that one day will fully glorify us as we stand face to face with you, neither ashamed nor terrified of being in your presence. So we long for that day. Lord, I want to pray specifically for the outreach of this church that we talked about earlier. Raise up those in this church, Lord, who would be passionate, that they would be zealous to find ways to reach the lost, like this demoniac who was healed did after he was healed by Jesus. And in so doing, Lord, we will give you all the praise and honor and glory for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song?